Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live on stage and without notes. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, it's a race to the finish at Slammer of the Year, our grand finale special event held at the Meridian Speedway on September 25th, 2018. A hit story slammer from each show in the foregoing Story Story Night flagship and late night seasons kicks it into high gear with a five minute story on the theme finish line. It's a high octane story time. Ladies and gentlemen, car number one, Micah Dragster Taylor. So when I was 20 years old, I wrote a bucket list. And on this bucket list was to be in a movie. And when I was 25, my dad calls up and he says, hey, guess what? They're hosting auditions in our small Montana town. So I ran down there right after work. I roll up um, to, the, to the reception desk and a guy with curly hair and a Hawaiian t-shirt looks up at me and goes, hello, Sergeant. And I look at him. He looks at me, and I look at him, and then he looks me up and down, and I look myself up and down, and I realize I had shown up for an audition for a horror movie in my full military uniform. (laughs) Combat boots, BDUs, and my hat. But I was already there. I needed to cross this finish line, so I thought I'm going in for the audition anyways. But a week later, I get a phone call, and hey, I'd gotten a part. I was playing a paranormal activity director who was looking for ghosts in an old jail who winds up getting murdered. My mother is so proud. <laughs> I go ahead and I, and I figured out a lot about myself on set. And one of the things was, was the setting. I arrive at an actual old jail and we filmed at night. And when I get there, the walls are covered in this Tiffany blue and there's old rust and there's tons of drawings by the actual prisoners that were there. There's so many drawings and so many words covered in pencil, they're even underneath the metal beds that are still in the prison. Not creepy at all. (laughs) Uh, Throughout the movie, I realized that I have talent. I am a really good screamer. Do not put this on your resume, by the way. You will not get a call back. (laughs) I also realized I had to stay in character. Uh, which I found very funny because I did not relate to my character at all. I feel that I am a strong woman and my character was not strong. She winds up running through a hallway uh, as the murderer is chasing after her and she's screaming. So I'm screaming and I'm figuring it out and I'm running away and then I stop and I realize, you know what? I could just turn around and kill this guy and I'm okay with that. But my character was not like that. So I return and I, I keep screaming and I keep running and then I die and I get hit by a two by four with two nails that go right to my head. Yeah. (laughs) I also realized that the lower budget films, they run out of simple things like blood, fake blood. So they get creative in the ways that they died. So I only had a little bit of blood right here. Throughout this process, I started liking acting. I really did. I was enjoying this. And I thought, I can make a career out of this. This is something I want to do, and it was unexpected. So at the premiere, I invited my whole family, my whole family. I invited my friends. I was so excited to be there. We were in this old theater and had red chairs, and the lights went down, and the screen opened up, and the movie came on, and I was so proud of all the people that I worked with. And finally, my part came in. 
I'm ready and I'm so excited and I show up on screen and I speak. Now I know I said I died by a two by four, but what I did not realize is I had about as much talent as that two by four. <laughs> I was terrible. Like embarrassing, terrible, where you sink back in the chair and you go, oh, oh no, 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 no. But I did it. And I will not tell you what that movie is. <laughs> but I will say this. I have a six-year-old son. And one day he will look on Amazon and I will show him where to find the movie when he's 45 and I'm not around. Thank you. Paul Optimus Prime. So, I met my friend Billy with eight staples in his head. Now, these staples had blood running down from him about up here, coming down each side of the ear, in his hair, down to his chin, all dried up, you know, just kind of haggard looking. And uh, he's just playing ping pong at the rec center, you know, back and forth. And I said, what happened to you, man? Like. I, I was curious, I was intrigued. And he said, oh dude, I just, I was bombing Kill Hill on my longboard and I fell and you know, I just got back from the doctor like an hour ago, I got these pills, whatever, you know. I'm just like, it's nice to meet you too. And um, so I had to learn more about this longboarding experience that was going on. And you've all heard of, you know, a longboard, it's just essentially a huge skateboard, bigger wheels mostly used for transportation. You see them around college campuses on the green belt, et cetera, and that's what I had used them for prior to that. But it turns out we wanted to use them for something a little bit bigger, faster, and better. And so we'd find the biggest hills we could find and bomb them. And bombing them means just charge because that's your only option. I learned very quickly when it came to bombing hills that there's a threshold there. And that threshold is basically the point of no return. And that would be somewhere between 10 and 15 miles an hour. You can no longer just jump off the side of the board, kind of run it out and fall into the grass and be okay. You either make the hill or you don't. If you don't, it's, it's not gonna be good. So uh, the sport actually becomes really fun. And after I had learned that, I had gotten past that point of no return plenty of times to get confidence. I was good with my board. We had a lot of people doing it. It was a blast. It was definitely, you know, we were all a bunch of snowboarders in a mountain town in Colorado. This was, a, this was our fix in the mud season. Um, so we start, you know, bombing more and more hills and our favorite hill ends up being one called Clubhouse. It comes down around the back of the mountain and then over the top of this beautiful golf course and it has fresh asphalt pavement. I mean, it's just unbelievable. We had like five or 10 of us going down this thing at once. I mean, just absolutely hooting, hollering, carving back and forth, just having a, a, a blast to the point where the traffic on that road got used to it and they would just part ways for us. Um, they kind of had to or else, you know, it, it could have been detrimental and, um, <laughs> so we can we continued to do that until finally you know it just it, it got so much fun we were doing it over and over and then three or four of us decided to get up one day and like hey let's go charge this before the sun goes down and um, uh, we get driven up by a car that's how we would always get to the top of the hill and then they would follow us down so three or four of us we're just all we've hit this hill like a thousand times and we just love it and we're just like yeah we're all stoked and we just start skating into it as hard as we can you know just getting a little extra speed to this hill and um, 
we go down, everything's going great. We're, you know, carving back and forth. Yeah, cool, bro. Yeah, I see you too. Yeah, you know, it's, it's fantastic. Until uh, I hit basically around one of the best turns, and then it increases our speed to around 40 miles an hour. And that's an accurate number because we used a GPS to monitor how fast we were going, as well as the car who would drop us off would always use the speedometer and clock us. And uh, that 40 mile per hour area is right where my board all of a sudden kinked and then snapped. The wheel fell off. The board stops in place. Everything goes slow motion. And I see that wheel rotating faster than any wheel I've ever seen in my life, bouncing down the hill in front of me. Meanwhile, I'm rolling into a tuck. I slide maybe 10, 20 feet, uh, roll over four or five times in any given direction just to land, looking at the car that was following us behind me uphill with my pants at my ankles. <laughs> I didn't know whether I was embarrassed. I didn't know whether I was lucky to be alive. I didn't know whether I was frustrated at the failure of my gear. One thing I did know is I was thrilled with Joe Boxer for reinforcing that waist strap so well because that was still intact despite the rest of my clothing. So I grab my broken gear, I get in the car, get a ride back down the hill, obviously, and uh, talk about it with my friends. And I'm just kind of like, do I want to do this anymore? Like that, I really, I mean, I came out with a scratch on my elbow. That could have been catastrophic at that speed. It, it could have been really bad. So I'm like, well, I just need some more certainty, some more security in this board. I got to make sure the wheels don't fall off. I take it to the skate shop and uh, I said, I told him my story, hey, the wheel fell off and you know, I really want to continue to do this. Can you look this thing over and let me know that it's not gonna fall off again? He said, sure, go, you know what? Everything looks good, go for it. And I start bombing down Steamboat Boulevard, which is a mellower hill. I hit the bottom where I'm slowing down, the wheel falls off again for me to get the most frustrating fall of my life, tailbone, shoulder, bleeding everywhere, to walk a block and a half back to my house and there's my roommate, Billy. And he looks at me and he says, as I'm all bloody, what happened, man? That was the finish line of my longboard experience. Alicia Machina Dotson. So I'm riding my bike and I'm pedaling slower and slower and slower as the miles go on. At mile 20, I shoved a felt ninja mask and a knit ski cap down my pants in order to make the bike seat a little more bearable. <laughs> At mile 30, I hit a physical wall. At mile 40, I hit a mental wall, and we're still riding. We were on a bike packing trip going 84 miles from New Meadows down to Weezer along the Weezer River Trail, and this was only the first day. Our finish line was supposed to be at a campground about mile 40, but our map reader, who had one job, didn't pull out any maps the entire trip. I started the trip out naively optimistic. Okay, 40 miles in one day. I do 10 miles in the gym on the, in the cycling class. I can handle this. Our friend, the map reader, had never been on a bikepacking trip either and obviously couldn't read a map. And my boyfriend, Steve, was our designated leader because he'd been on one bikepacking trip before and he talks like he knows what he's talking about. So the trip started out about like how you'd think it would. 
We woke up late from our hotel room in no real big rush to get started. Hotel room? Yeah, we couldn't find a camping spot. Couldn't find a camping spot? Yeah, because of the snow. Snow? Yeah, it was March in New Meadows and there was two feet of snow. We gave up looking after we got the car almost stuck, testing to actually see if it really was two and a half feet of snow or just looked like it. So that morning we bushwhacked through the bushes to actually get to the trail and it started out pretty fun. I had the biggest tires and the lightest load and for a couple hours I could actually pedal pretty well. But as the sun came out and the snow started to melt, there was less pedaling and more walking. And so you'd walk really lightly trying to stay on top of the snow, but then you'd fall through and you'd fall through up past your knees. We lost sight of the map reader. He had the heaviest bike, the smallest tires, the least experience, and we'd wait and all of a sudden all you'd hear was bleep, 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 bleep. You'd wait a little bit longer, you'd hear it again. And you'd see him trudging through the snow. He'd try to pedal and then just push the bike over. <laughs> About four miles into the snow, we finally decided to hit the road. And it wasn't a good spot to hit the road because the road was about 20 feet in, you know, above us. And there wasn't a trail there. It was like a 45 degree incline with trees and snow to the road. So Steve and I argued a little bit about this exact spot we sounded a whole lot like the map reader's parents in the way we argued back and forth. He went type A, a vein pulsed in his forehead, and he had an epic adult meltdown. And if he physically could have, he would have picked up those bikes, swung them around like an Olympian tossing the hammer up to the top, and there we would be. But that didn't happen. A lot less gracefully, we ended up at the very top. So we regroup on the side of Highway 95, and it becomes apparent of my naivety in this situation because I ended up thinking good apparel for snow is Nike trail shoes, white cotton socks, and Levi's. <laughs> I'll own it, because I was fully prepared to ride the rest of the way in flip-flops. After getting everything organized again and figuring ourselves out, we decided to bomb down Highway 95 on our bikes. And the feeling of drafting, where I don't even have to pedal and I can catch up to the person in front of you, just hunched over the handlebars, almost feels like flying. And I really tried to enjoy it between thinking the thought that I really hope if the front tire falls off this bike, I die instantly when I hit the pavement. <laughs> we finally get below the snow line and regain the trail. And from here, it's nice and flat. And for a while it was fun, but with the time on the bike to funness ratio, it was like a downward slope. The longer on the bike, the less fun I was having. To where you're just tired and miserable and your butt hurts, and we're still riding and riding and riding and riding. We finally hit camp and settled down and get everything organized, and our map reader, somehow in the midst of cooking his dinner, unscrews the cap off of a portable propane bottle and it's dead silence. You could hear crickets as we look back and forth and propane is just shooting off <laughs> into the air and no one knows how to stop it. We go to sleep that night with the smell of propane in the air 
Steve telling me, if you think your butt hurts today, just wait until the morning. And I realized that the real finish line was another day and 40 more miles down the trail. Becca, 100 Watkins. Oh, I just got that. So when I was 13 years old, I read my first book, and it was called Sybil. And it was about a woman with multiple personality disorder. And after I read that book, I wanted an alternate personality because I was living with a very dysfunctional family that was full of addicts. Um, I never got an alternate personality, but I did get an eating disorder, which I hid for the next 10 years. So at about the age 25, I decided I was finished living my life the way that I was and I wanted help, so I checked myself into a treatment hospital. However, when I got there, I found out that the eating disorders unit was not open yet. And so they needed to temporarily place me on another unit, which would be for women suffering from trauma with multiple personality disorder. <laughs> So when I arrived on the unit, I saw this woman sitting in the hallway, and she was not responding, and she was staring off into this space that didn't exist. And I remember thinking, it must be so quiet in her mind. I wish I could go away like her. Well, that evening, I saw the same woman pacing the hallway, holding a waste paper basket, pretending to puke in it, and talking in some made-up language. And I was thinking, like, where the hell am I? I also found out when I arrived that my nutritionist and my therapist were not going to be on site till Monday because I arrived on a Thursday, which was Thanksgiving. So I was in charge of my meal plan and my treatment plan. So I immediately found a closet and I hid in it. I would go, I would get my meals, I would throw them away, and then I would hide in this closet and I would sit in there in my in journal and I left it open just to crack for enough light. And on day two, I heard like this, tap, tap, tap on the door. And lo and behold, the same woman is standing there with her hands on her hips, and she is a very large woman. I remember her stretch pants stretched at the crotch. I remember armpit hanging over her tank top, and she was this image of everything I did not want my body to be. And I, uh, she tried to open the door, and I held, it I held it tightly shut. And then she leaned forward, and she whispered into the crack, you cannot stay in there forever. Well, the next day, she, uh, she came into my bedroom before I woke up, and she sat on the edge of my bed, and she let out a huge fart, and then she introduced herself as Windy with an I. And then she proceeded to ask me, why are you here? What's going on? What medications are you on? And I told her, and she's like, oh, it causes nausea, vomiting, bulimia, anorexia. Like, you're screwed. Um, this is the same woman who, when I went to craft class, pushed a jar of glitter into my hand and told me to put it in her hair, and I was like, no, 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 no. So she undid the lid and dumped the entire contents of glitter onto her head and then shook it like this. Well, I was done being around this woman. I was done. So I went to the nurse's station, and I was like, can I please check out my colored pencils and sit outside? And they're like, yeah, but don't let the other patients out. And I was like, okay. So I did. And I cracked the door open just a little bit, and out came the patients. And the first woman walked out, and she would walk along the edge of the grass, and she touched the leaves as if she'd never seen leaves before, and she'd fold them and put them in her pocket. And then another woman came out, and she stood on the edge between the facility and the grass, and she'd say things like, you're all going to get in trouble. You have to come inside. You have to come inside. You're not supposed to be out there. At which point, I saw Wendy shove her to the side, yell out to me, save me that lawn chair, went and put her shorts on, 
came back out with her hairy legs, grabbed that lawn chair and dragged it all the way across the lawn, leaving large divots, and plunked it down next to me. And then she took my journal out of my hand, and she wrote this poem in it that she memorized. And the last line of that poem was, we drew a circle that took him in. Well, that day, I ended up sitting with Wendy and a group of other women in a circle, and we started to have these intimate conversations. And we started to talk about all the things we were afraid of. We started to talk about how we didn't know where we belonged in the world, and some of us didn't even know who we were. Um, before the end of that day, Wendy and I actually exchanged shoes, as I wore the same size shoe as her, size 11. Um, and when I walked out of that facility about a week later wearing her Converse. Though it wasn't the finish line for all that I needed to deal with in my life, it was the beginning of me feeling like I wasn't alone and that I just might be okay. David Lightning Lee. Uh, finish line. We're here at a racetrack, so naturally, I'm sure most of you are thinking of race, but my story is really more, more about a journey. It's been kind of a long journey. Uh, so far, it's gone on almost six decades. It started in December 1960. That's when my younger brother, Kevin, was born. And he kind of changed the journey for our whole family, because Kevin was born with Down syndrome come from a Midwestern Irish Catholic family. We had six kids, two boys, two girls, two boys. I was number five. Kevin was number six. So when I say Kevin changed our journey, he didn't really change my journey because I don't really remember the journey before that. I was two and a half years old when he was born. So I've always been part of Kevin's journey and he's always been part of mine. Uh, among other things, and being back to back like that, I've had a front row seat to a lot of his journey, which has been interesting in a lot of ways, such as his journey through the educational system. My parents were big activists and advocates, and they were early, early and ardent advocates for things like mainstreaming, inclusion, that kind of thing. That wasn't the state of things when Kevin started school. He got a, rode on one of those little yellow buses for miles and miles away from our home to an old schoolhouse somewhere out in the country in the middle of a cornfield where he could be with other kids like him. Problem is he wasn't really around anybody else or any community or anything else. And my parents being the advocates they were uh, and through many years of battling with bureaucracy, by the time Kevin finished his education, he graduated from the same high school I did. Glenbard, Glenbard East High School, Lombard, Illinois, where among other things, he was on the wrestling team, something he's very proud of to this day, and he's very proud of having gone to Glenbard. When I go back home, we often take a ride around our old hometown, and he always wants to go by our high school, which he says with great pride. Anyhow, his journey's continued since high school, and it's been some big changes. Of course, all his brothers and sisters have moved moved on to other places. My dad passed away in 2005. So for the last 12, 13 years, the journey's mostly been Kevin and my mom. Uh, and, most, and as my mom's gotten older and more limited, Kevin ends up assisting her with more and more things. And it's interesting to watch how that caregiver relationship kind of takes on a more mutual 
reciprocal effect. Uh, anyhow, so how does this relate to finish line? Well, you see, my mom's 96 years old. And Kevin is 57. But for Down syndrome, that's getting at the outer ends of longevity. So I guess you could say they're both kind of facing a finish line. Fortunately, at the moment, they're both in good health, so that finish line's not imminent. But it's there, and it's apparent to all of us, all of the family, and to Mom and Kev, and particularly to Kev. And on a recent trip home, we had a brother-to-brother -brother talk where he kind of took a roundabout way to get to a question about the elephant in the room, like, what, are, what am I going to do when mom's gone? He's already thought about it quite a lot. They live in a retirement center now, and he thinks, oh, I'll be fine during the day. I got all my friends around here, but I don't know. What do I do at night? If I get up in the middle of the night and mom's not here. About all I could tell him was that, hey, you've got your brothers and sisters, and even though we're all scattered, we're going to be there to, to help you get through it all. I wish I had a more definitive answer to give him, but I don't. I wish I had a snappy, happy finish to the story, but I don't. The good news is I don't have a sad ending to this story. <laughs> I don't know what the ending is. And to tell you the truth, I'm really in no hurry to find out. There's some finish lines you don't really want to cross. Thank you. Aaron Stoner Hudson. So, fun fact about me is um, I have this fun little talent of producing kidney stones. Uh, I got my first kidney stone when I was 20, which resulted in a kidney, urinary tract, and bladder infection in a hospital visit. So, over the years, I've had 16 kidney stones so I'm pretty good at noticing when they come on it's a really fun fact to use in two truths and a lie because no one believes you when you say you've had 16 kidney stones so one of these instances was when I had to finish something and I was in summer school and I felt it coming on and it was a math test it was a calculus test and I'm really bad at math like just really bad. It just doesn't compute with me. I had a tutor that summer. I'm just bad at it. And the professor was a very type A analytical personality. So if I walked into that room starting the test and got up in the middle of it and said, hey, can I finish this later? I'm about to pass a kidney stone. He would have said, I don't believe you and told me to sat down. So I figured I should probably just power through this and finish it. So I'm in the, we had assigned seats and I was in the front row, probably because he knew I was bad at math. And I am shaking, I am bright white, and I am dripping sweat all over this desk. And he's just kind of watching me and I'm shaking 
finishing this test. And I don't know if any of you have passed a kidney stone. I've been told it's kind of like giving birth, so I guess I'm ready for that. Cool. Um, and I'm trying to process, and I've been studying for this test with a tutor, but the thing about the pain is that everything leaves your brain. <laughs> everything I studied had left my brain as I'm trying to process this thing out of my body at the same time. So I'm just kind of trying to get through the end of this test. And I did finish the test, and I did turn it in, and I powered through, and I, he usually requires people to stay through the test. Um, I think he saw me in the state I was in, and he let me leave soon after that. Um, and suffice it to say, regardless of powering through that finish line, I did not pass the test. <laughs> <laughs> it's Fred Rumble-Dibble. May 1978, I found myself with my brother Rick uh, as a transplant from Texas living in the Northwest. So we got together to uh, celebrate him finishing his year of college, his third year of college, and me finishing my year as a VISTA volunteer in Lewiston, Idaho. We decided to plan a cross-country trip, uh, five-day challenge from Spokane, Washington to our hometown in Lockhart, Texas. So the prize would be, if we completed it in five days, would be attendance at a family reunion, which was always a, a grand event, uh, going to see Willie Nelson, which was uh, out of this world, and all the barbecue we could eat at probably the best Texas barbecue places in the world in Lockhart, Texas. So we gathered up a bunch of maps. We sat down and we planned the trip. We loaded up the car and took off from Lewiston. Um, the first day was from Lewiston down to Sun Valley, Idaho. Pretty uneventful, two big uh, our, uh, downhill trips through uh, the Lewiston Hill and White Bird uh, Pass. So we made it to Sun Valley, spent the night there. We got up the next morning took off and headed for Salt Lake City. On the way, there were a couple of uh, wild um, antelopes crossing the road, uh, some gasoline trucks that were swerving back and forth in front of us. So, but we made it around them and we're doing okay. Oh, I might tell you now that uh, the uh, automobile for this adventure was a 1960 Rambler American with a flathead six, one barrel carburetor, and a three-speed on the tree uh, standard transmission. So not the powerhouse that, that uh, we might expect. <clears throat> but it was getting us down the road pretty well with a maximum speed of 60 miles an hour. And that's downhill. So we got to Salt Lake City, headed off for Denver, Colorado, Everything was fine. Um, we were looking good. We were making time. Well, we knew the next leg was going to be the tough one. From Denver to Lubbock, we had to go over 
Raton Pass, 8,000 feet. And you know, the air just get, keeps getting thinner and thinner. So as we headed out of Denver, it's like 200 miles from Denver to Raton Pass. And it just keeps going up and up. And the car kept getting slower and slower and slower. And it was like 50 miles an hour with 25 miles to go. 40 miles an hour with 10 miles to go. Five miles to go, we were down to 20 miles an hour. It's like, oh my gosh. And, that, and so I shifted it down to second gear or up to second gear. <clears throat> we got a little boost and kind of held it there at 15. And we were crawling towards the peak a mile to go. And it's like, oh my gosh, we're not going to make it. So I shifted it back into first gear. And we were getting closer and closer. And the motor was just like, <sighs> it was screaming, <sighs> trying to get enough oxygen to get us over the pass. And it was just like, we're not going to make it. And I looked at my brother and I said, get ready to jump out and push. So we could, you know, it was like a half a mile, a mile. We're still in first gear and it's five miles an hour. <clears throat> and I'm going, what am I going to do? So as we crept up those last couple of feet, I came up with a plan. I shifted it into second gear. I stomped down on that accelerator. It kicked into overdrive and jumped forward, maybe 15 miles an hour. But it was going forward. And as soon as I could see the peak of the hill, which was just up ahead, I shifted it into third, stomped down again, hit overdrive, and it jumped forward. And I could see the whole valley on the other side. It was like I could see all the way to Lockhart and I could smell that barbecue and hear Willie Nelson playing. And we, the rest of the trip was easy and we made it just in time and it was the best adventure ever. It's Kate Butane Belton. I am just a poor wayfaring stranger traveling through this world below. There is no sickness, no toil, nor danger in the bright land to which I go. I am going there to see my father. So last December, uh, it was a Monday morning and I was driving to work and I called my dad like I normally do. And he picked up the phone and he didn't sound too good. And I said, Daddy, you don't sound too good. And he said, well, Kate, I don't feel too good. And he told me that he was on his way to an oncology appointment and they were gonna try and get some medication worked out. And I said, okay, daddy. Well, you just give me a call later and you let me know how that goes. He said, I'll do that. A couple hours later, I was at work and I got a phone call from him. And I knew before I picked up the phone what he was gonna say. So I stepped outside of the office and I answered it. And he said, Kate, it's, it's time for you to come on home now. And I said, okay, daddy, I'm on my way. I'll be there as soon as I can. So I should probably tell you that uh, my dad is not actually my father. Uh, I didn't have a dad growing up. Uh, I didn't actually have uh, positive male role models. Um, 
And so I, as a kid, I would pray every single night uh, for God, you know, God, please send me a dad. And I would actually go up to random men in the grocery store and ask them to be my father. <laughs> my mother loved it. Uh, well, when I was 11, I actually did get a dad, and he was a great one. His name was Tom, and he was a farmer in northern Indiana. Uh, he never graduated from college, but he was one of the most educated uh, and well-read men that I've ever met in my entire life. He hated proselytizing uh, Baptist preachers, but loved a good Baptist hymn. And he never sugarcoated anything, but had a heart of gold. So after I got off the phone with him, I should also probably tell you that he was my best friend as well, but yeah. Anyway, uh, so after I got off the phone with him, I went home and I booked a plane ticket to Indianapolis. And from Indianapolis, I was going to drive three hours north to his farm in northern Indiana. So the next day, I get to Indianapolis. I go to pick up my rental car, uh, pull out my, and I, I've drained my bank account to book this emergency flight to Indianapolis. So I pull out my credit card at the rental car uh, thing, and um, my credit card is declined. And there's no reason in the world why my credit card should be declined. There's none. And it's declined multiple times. So I call my credit card company, and they tell me that my card has been shut down because there was fraudulent activity. So the one time that I need it, it's not working. And I'm stuck in the Indianapolis airport. And my family is texting me, telling me to hurry up and get home. And all I can really think about is getting to the finish line. And uh, that's being there for my dad this one last time when he's been there so many times for me. So I have $20 in cash in my pockets. So uh, planes, trains, and automobiles, one sleepless night in a Greyhound bus station in Indianapolis. Super fun, highly recommend. Uh, one uh, Greyhound bus ride up to northern Indiana. From northern Indiana, I get a hitchhike ride over to our small town. From our small town, my aunt and uncle pick me up, and they drop me off at my daddy's farm, and I am running. I am running up the gravel driveway and up the stairs and through the wraparound porch and through those farm doors that always stick. And I'm there. And I walk into his room, and I have the last conversation that anyone ever has with him. And after a while, he tells me that he's tired. And I say, OK, Daddy. So I get him comfortable. And the last thing that he ever said in this world was, Kate, I sure am glad you're here. And I said, me too, Daddy. He, uh, he passed away two days later. And after he died, I could still feel his presence. And uh, I can still feel it. And the only thing that I can feel is love. Jason Rocket Hudson. I run a lot of races. But there's one race in particular that's really close to my heart and pretty unique. So I figured I'd tell you guys about it tonight. In this particular race, you have to race in teams of two. And per the rules of the race, you are not allowed to be more than 15 feet apart at any point on the course. And that course is challenging. 30 miles, climbs to over 13,000 feet of elevation on the Continental Divide, bushwhacks across country, and 
involves uh, making your way through the thunderstorms and hailstones that frequently lash the Colorado high country on summer afternoons. This race, more than any of the other races that I do in a year, requires real teamwork to cross the finish line. So new folks show up every year to test their mettle against the challenges on this, this particular course, but most of the field are seasoned vets. Um, and so consequently, we have developed a really tight-knit community around this race. Everybody knows each other. Teams are frequently the same from year to year. And usually you can uh, predict who the top finishers are going to be with a pretty degree, high degree of certainty before the race even starts. I have never been one of those top finishers. And so this summer... I decided I was going to take a bit of a gamble. I roll into town and the questions start. Jason, who are you running with? Uh, Amanda? Amanda? Dude, she's insane. Amanda? You know she has a terrible attitude. Amanda? Nobody ever agrees to run with her twice. But I want to make one thing clear. I was not duped. I knew her reputation. I knew what I was getting into. But I had seen Amanda run. And she has this smooth, sleek, elegant gait that is a wonder to behold. And I was convinced that she could win that race with the right teammate. I had also managed to convince myself that that right teammate might just be me. So, race morning dawns. I get into town. I find Amanda. We go to the athlete meeting. And... We start laying out our gear for a day in the mountains. I turn around, and she is fighting with my dad. And I immediately think, oh no. I have made a terrible, terrible mistake. So I get over there, I get it settled. I still don't know what started it. Um, and we get to the starting line. The gun cracks. We take off out of town, and things are going well. The weather is holding. My legs feel good. We're running well together. And I start thinking, you know what? Maybe this is going to go our way. And you all know what that means. <laughs> yep. Back half of the course, five hours into this run, things get ugly. We are exhausted. We are hungry. We are cranky. Things get tense. And then Amanda kicks me. <laughs> now, yes, I stumbled over a rock and bumped into her and invaded her personal space bubble. But you do not build race winning team camaraderie by kicking your teammates. So I want to make one thing really clear in case it's a little bit murky. Amanda is an ass. 
And I mean that quite literally. Amanda is a donkey. She's a burro. Amanda is a four-legged equine running with me on a 15-foot lead rope. And this race that we're running is the 70th annual Packboro Racing World Championships in Fair Play, Colorado. It is the pinnacle of the Western Packboro Association Summer C Series and the crown jewel of the triple crown of Packboro Racing. So Amanda has now found someone who is willing to run with her twice. And I still believe that she's gonna win that championship one of these days. I just hope she picks me as her teammate when she does it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is brought to you by our story party, Amy Moran, Karis Kimball, Hannah Mae Schaefer, Karen Moore, Nick Warden, Frankie Barnhill, Terry Lawrence, and me, Jody Eichelberger. Thank you to the Slammers and the Slam media sponsor, Radio Boise. Finish Line was directed by Amanda Rich. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari and featuring live music from Adam Shavaria. Support the storied program, find upcoming shows, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night. To become a storyteller, send an email to story at storystorynight.org. 